Hello and welcome to Contemplations. I make my debut today in the library with none other than Bodade, also known as History Bro, also known as the Ballistic Missile Dispenser. Um, <laughs> and we're going to be talking about whether geography is the main factor or a factor in determining a country's success. And I think that we probably both can agree, quite obviously, that it helps if you have geography on your side. But what we're going to do is go through the different factors that make up, you know, the geographical nature of a country, breaking down how important they really are. And I feel like you're the man for the job because we're going to be going through lots of historic examples. And I think that's the only real way you can evaluate this because in the short term, it's very difficult to understand the consequences of certain choices in a, a political sense. And you have to have a sort of long span of history to look at the rise and fall of nations and of empires and things of that nature. And I think it's actually much better to answer this question in that way than it is in a strict geographical way, the way a geographer might. Um, I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I think it's uh, fairly obvious to say that it, of course, plays a factor. Mm. So we'll probably be discussing just to what degree it does. Because yeah. um, I think we came up with this idea one, in one of our epochs I had with Carl about the Anglo-Dutch wars, he made the argument that it's just a massive, Carl's made the argument before a couple of different times, that it's a massive thing, maybe the main thing. I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't I agree think, it's the main thing, yeah. Sorry. I think maybe there's a certain threshold below which you're in trouble. I think that, I, I definitely think that's the case. Um, so for example, a central Asian landlocked country with very minimal resources. Yeah, you're, you're sort of always going to be fighting an uphill struggle there. But it doesn't mean, I don't think necessarily there are certain places that are destined to be great successes because of their geography. Mm -hmm. um, but we'll see. Um, obviously, it's a contemplation, so let you lead the discussion and take it where you like. Um, but I think it's a really important topic because um, Thomas Sowell, talked about it. Mm. Um, I haven't actually read Soul on this topic. Nor have um, I. I'm a big fan of Soul, ordinarily, but yeah. I think um, on a couple of things, particularly history, he can be a bit misplaced. Like he uh, tried to paint, uh, just as an example, um, he tried to paint, I think it was in his book, uh, Black Rednecks and White Liberals, I think that's what it's called. Uh, he, he talked about um, the South and how it was shaped by Irish and Scottish ancestry. And sure, they did settle there, but I think it was culturally distinct enough that you could classify it as its, it as its own thing. Enough time had passed that they'd developed a culture individually. And he was attributing lots of things to those parent cultures that I don't think was necessarily fair. So, you know, he's got a bit of a, a record in my mind of not always being on the money, but certainly on matters of economics. I very much defer to his wisdom. Mm. I know there's just a few uh, arguments, lines, lines of argument on this topic about how much geography determines the success of a civilization or a culture or a country. Mm. I just think too much emphasis can be placed on it. Um, I'm, I'm very much inclined to agree with that. I would probably argue that um, values and, and social attitudes play a more important role, but we'll be getting into that a bit later, I imagine. But I think the first thing, the first factor I'd like to introduce is whether a country, and you've already alluded to this, is landlocked or coastal. 
And I think that this is very significant because I remember hearing um, a fact that about 75% of all hunter-gatherer societies were coastal. Very few of them were, you know, in landlocked areas. I imagine the ones that weren't coastal would have been near a large body of water, preferably fresh water, I would imagine. And that has obvious advantages because, of course, in the, in the hunter-gatherer setting, you've got lots of food availability very easily in that not only do you have access to fish, which, you know, is not necessarily that energy intensive to get if you have fishing, you can just sit there. Mm. Um, you also, when there's low tide, have access to all of the shellfish, which is great. And also you have, you know, rock pools where you can get trapped fish, crabs, all of this sort of thing. And that would be enough just one low tide to feed you and then some. Mm. And so it made sense that people who were living hand to mouth to a certain extent, obviously still dried berries and, and meat and fruit and things like that for later, but they still had to live somewhat a subsistence existence that they would position themselves in such a place. And um, of course, this, hasn't, this advantage hasn't really changed too much over the ages of that sort of positioning. A lot of major cities are um, close to the coast, mm. like London is relatively close to the coast. It's also on a river, which is very important. Like New York is coastal. Well, that's what I was gonna say. I think it's beyond the hunter-gatherer era um, that is still the case even today, but it makes less, it's less important yes. in the modern world or the postmodern world. But certainly before modernity, I think the vast majority of all peoples live close to the coast or a river. Mm. I think all the nearly, nearly all the greatest, biggest cities are either on the coast or on big rivers. Um, to have uh, a classic example, counter example of it is the Mongolian capital. What was it like, like Karakoram or something it was called? I know um, it's modern day one, but that's not helpful. Um, what is it, Ulaanbaatar? It is, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, Mongolia, the modern the country, country of Mongolia. Yeah. But no, the ancient or medieval capital of Mongolia was obviously completely landlocked. It was in the middle of Asia, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and, and by the very nature of that, it could never, it could never become a sort of a giant metropolis and survive into the modern era or, or anything like that. And so, yeah, most big cities are, are on rivers. And... I think you say that the sea or rivers are just a great resource for food, if nothing else. Mm. Uh, much long, much further in time after the hunter-gatherer type well, periods. Well, you need only look at the Japanese, for example. That's exactly what I was going to say. Japan yeah. is a great example of it. I've seen it said that um, Japan was able to be as successful as it was, being as poorly industrialised as it was for so long, and support such a big population simply because um wherever you are a bit like britain you're never more than 50 60 70 miles from the coast ever at any point that's the mm. nature of these those islands um and so if you become masters of fishing and not just for fish for shellfish everything that the sea provides if you master that you can in fact support massive populations without even having animal husbandry true animal mm -hmm. husbandry um, so it can be so a it's good... remarkable what the sea and rivers can provide for a culture mm -hmm. or civilization.
And in Japan's case, their reliance on fishing was largely because of the mountains making agriculture much more difficult than, say, the European plains. Mm, mm, that's true. And so they, they needed that. And of course, fish as well, being very nutritious. Um, it's got lots of fats and things like that that are good for you, good for brain development as well, which never hurts. Mm. But um, you mentioned the Mongolians, and I, I wanted to follow up on that because I think their entire culture is, is kind of formed around the nature of their geography there. And I think that that's quite an interesting example to explore because their sort of nomadic traditions, that was because of the fact that it was largely empty plains. There weren't necessarily um, any resources to, to stay by. And of course, they needed lots of pack animals and they had things like goats and things like that. So they had lots of herd animals that they could be on the move with. And this was very much shaped to the environment that they had to live on. And so it did shape the nature of their culture. I, I remember hearing about, um, is it the, the Golden Horde? I can't remember, but they, um, they had like a spare four or five horses, was it? Hmm. Um, when they were doing horse archery so they could cycle through, but they would eat hundreds and hundreds of miles worth of grass as they were moving and so they needed to constantly move and and this was all determined by the geography of the situation so perhaps in that instance that's a kind of niche and extreme instance whereby you can see the fingerprints of the geography shaping the nature of their culture yeah no absolutely the mongolian steppe they're like steppe peoples mm. aren't they um and so obviously after the introduction of of horses and that's sort of a long long time ago before sort of any written history of uh, when men uh, domesticated and started riding horses so that the steppe cultures the mongolian central asian steppe peoples um, of which the mongolians are just a quite a late version of um uh, they <clears throat> it's so entrenched in their culture that they you, you learn to ride from the earliest possible age when you could be put on a horse and um, sort of, yeah, giant open plains where there's not, uh, you know, you're already high up on a plateau. So there aren't, there are of course mountain ranges, but you can go for vast distances without having to cross a significant mountain range. And there's no giant forests, um, um, like virgin forests or anything. So, but there are rivers and it's very windswept. Yeah, so it's a very specific type of geography and climate or microclimates you have up there on the Mongolian steppe. Um, and you become adapted to those specifically. Mm. And it makes you, uh, well, it's the way it played out in, real, in the real world is that it makes you superb horse warriors and very hardy. And as being nomadic peoples as well, um, makes you very self-proficient. Um, and so when you come up against sort of urbanized much weaker softer people in europe um you appear or you seem in contrast much much more hardy or, or, or barbaric even uh, i mean that's always the case when steppe peoples have come out of the east and invaded the near east or europe eastern europe they always always have seemed um significantly more barbaric whether it's the scythians or the alans or whoever it is or even before that like the yamna peoples whatever it is um 
or, or the or the Mongols. Um, yeah, they they're a product of their of their geography. Mm, of I course, think, I think course. that it's certainly more important if you're nomadic, or you're potentially moving around temporarily, maybe in a sort of gypsy traveller style thing. You're a bit more dependent on the environment and geography you're in than say uh, a town that doesn't really move. You mm. can stay in the same town your entire life and, and get by just fine, probably live a bit more comfortably if anything. And I think that civilization makes it easier to disregard geography and if you're living a more traditional hunter-gatherer style lifestyle, which I would say sort of step nomads seem to be, although you know domestication of horses didn't really go on in sort of hunter-gatherer times per se, certainly not in all areas. Um, and so I think that there are parallels there between that and they're sort of living more in a, a dare I say, a state of nature, although that mm -hmm. term's obviously loaded with lots of connotations that I don't want. But it seems to me that that is certainly a factor that determines how reliant a, a, a civilization is on, on its geography. You can be nomadic, or people can be nomadic, or you can be sort of semi-nomadic. Mm. There's sort of many shades of grey of being nomadic, basically. Um, sort of whether you're fully sort of always on the move, just following around herds. Uh, I mean, even today in the modern world, there are sort of fairly fully nomadic peoples, aren't there? In, in, for example, in Siberia, mm. um, there's, there's peoples up there which follow around reindeer herds. And then there's people, again, still in Central Asia to this day, Mongolian people actually, yeah. um, that are sort of semi-nomadic. They move around to a degree. They, they haven't have... got fully settled. They haven't fully husbandized their animals. Mm. Um, but they're not constantly on the move, though. They have some specific sites that they go to, depending on the seasons and right, the time yeah. of year, right? And um, you use the example of following reindeer and stuff, and that's um, akin to the, the Sami in Finland, isn't it? And I think that they follow the reindeer herds, um, and that's and the reindeer herds movements are dependent on the seasons, aren't they? Um, mm. And so it makes sense that they're, they're going to be moving around somewhat semi-nomadically. It's just what their, their environmental pressures, although how much you can attribute to the environment if they're sort of semi-domesticated animals. Well, that's another thing about the, um, the idea that if you are civilised, in inverted commas, you don't need to worry about your geography as much. Same goes for the seasons. Mm. In our world, 21st century West, um, you don't, the, the seasons don't matter. You know, I can go to Tesco's or Sainsbury's and buy strawberries or pineapples or bananas all year round that you couldn't even grow in Britain at the best of times. So the seasons of when things grow, you, you don't have to worry about. It. You don't have to worry mm. that uh, there's certain times of year that will be more lean than others. There's certain types of food that you won't be, you just cannot get at certain times of the year. All that we don't have to worry about at all. Um, the only thing you just might notice that it's darker uh, earlier in the evening mm -hmm. or later in the evening, or it's darker when you wake up and go to work. That's sort of the only thing you notice, really. Or of course, the the actual weather, how hot and cold it is, but it doesn't make any real difference. Certainly it's not a matter of survival. No. It doesn't even register mm -hmm. in your mind as something that um, contributes to your survival. Whereas, obviously, if you're nomadic or semi-nomadic, mm. absolutely it is. 
I think certainly some European and North American uh, countries, I'm thinking particularly sort of your Norways, your Canadas, where they live in quite cold conditions, there is some element of preparing for the seasons. And, and normally they're so enculturated into living in those conditions that it, it's second nature. You don't really have to think very much about what you have to do. They just know um, through word of mouth, really. Yeah. Um, but I've, I've spoke to Norwegians in particular um, who've explained that, yeah, well, you know, you just keep a shovel by the door and sometimes you have to dig your way out to get to work. <laughs> yeah. um, it's just kind of taking it on the chin and getting on with it, really. But if you're prepared, you know what you're expecting, then it's not really a big deal in a, in a developed country. And it's also worth adding as well, if you're in Britain, the weather doesn't really change. It's just w what temperature the rain is <laughs> yeah. most of the time. How rainy it's going to be. Mm. And if it might be sleet or snow, that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I was thinking lots of these people, again, even today, there's not that many of them, but in the ancient world, of course, it was applied to a lot more people. But the, you've got the cycle of the year. Your whole year is sort of, you have to think about mm. uh, preparing for winter, essentially what it is um if you've got sort of the tunguskan tribesmen up in sort of siberia or the inuits somewhere in the very very north or northern norwegians where um yeah for months really or for half of the year or something you're planning for the winter which is going to be sort of a hellacious ordeal and you know it is and you've mm. lived through it many times and so but you know it's coming Whereas, or even uh, the, um, the opposite of that, if you live by the equator and you know that in summer or during the days in summer, you're not really going to be able to do anything. You just have to shelter from the heat. That's all you can do. Again, as a Brit, nothing like that comes up on your radar. It never crosses your mind. I mean, even in Spain, famously, there's the siesta. It's too hot in the middle of the day uh, to do anything. I've spent a lot of time out. in Spain and... I, I really enjoyed it when it was a ghost town and it was really hot outside. I'm a weird British person that actually likes the heat. I'm like a reptile. If it's or a like mad four... dog. <laughs> Only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday heat. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's very interesting how if you're not enculturated into those sorts of behaviours, you, you're perhaps more remiss to fall afoul of them. Like I went out into, I think it was in the Tabernas Desert in Almeria is where actually they filmed the, the Good, the Bad and the Ugly and those Spaghetti Western trilogies. It was really good actually. They still have the full Wild West town. But that was nearly approaching 50 degrees uh, Celsius, that is. Um, I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit. But um, it's very hot. And uh, yeah, all I did was go from one bit of shade to another bit of shade and I had a cowboy hat on because they were selling them and it was really hot. Mm. So I didn't feel like a poser. <laughs> but it, it, it is quite serious and it makes sense that the, the culture has formed around that. Mm. But you touched on something that I wanted to look at in a bit more detail, actually, um, is you mentioned the equator. And I think that this is something very important um, just more generally is your position from the equator determines the extent of change of the seasons and so if you're close to the equator the difference between the seasons isn't really as stark as say further north 
you go really far north, then some seasons are light, some seasons are dark the entire time. Mm. But um, in, say, continental Europe, for example, you can have highs of 40 degrees and then lows of minus 20. This is, again, Celsius. Um, so it can be quite severe. You have to be prepared. And I think that that climate has shaped the sort of northern hemisphere's culture and attitudes to, to some extent because it forces innovation, doesn't it? Because you're having to adapt to lots of different environments. And so it makes sense that countries that have seasons that are more stark tend to have more technological advancements than equatorial countries because in equatorial countries the climate stays the same and normally well in all cases because it's the equator it will be quite hot and therefore plants can fruit throughout the year mm. and so if you're living a hunter-gatherer lifestyle you're going to have an easier time because you're not going to have to adapt your lifestyle nearly as much to the seasons as you would the further away you move from the equator and I think that this goes to explain to a certain extent why countries close to the equator, other than it being debilitatingly hot, tend to be less advanced technologically because they can live more comfortably in a traditional hunter-gatherer style of living than they, you could in Europe. If you did that, you would probably die, is mm. the, the long and short of it. Because of course, it would get to the winter, there would be no fruits and berries, animals would be more hard to come by and you would probably starve. I agree with that up to a point. I think that certainly has to be the case. There's not really any way you could argue the opposite of that for ancient times, for prehistory times. Yes, that's what I had in mind. Right, 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 yeah. In the modern world, I don't know if that necessarily holds as much water, but no. yeah, I mean, I've been to some extremely hot and humid places around the equator, jungle type places, places where you have the monsoon seasons rather than four distinct seasons you've just got the rainy season and the non-rainy season places like that and it might sound like a bit of cope or a bit of, of a cop-out but i can sort of see how it makes for a more lethargic person you have to sit back and relax mm -hmm. for like big chunks of the year or big chunks of the day every day you haven't really got any option but to just not really do anything because it's so hot and humid one example i must i think i've told this anecdote somewhere before maybe on my own channel, but I was once in Cambodia visiting Angkor Wat in Cambodia. And uh, it, was, it was their sort of hottest part of their year, roughly, in the middle of the day. And I was, went to climb one of these pyramids. You're allowed to. It's not like Central America where you're strictly forbidden from climbing up the sides of these pyramids. You're encouraged. It's fine. There's no problem. There's usually um, uh, a Buddhist at the top who's happy to accept small donations. So you're absolutely encouraged to do it. There's no problem with that. And when I went to climb up one, one of the stalls uh, manned by a few little old ladies at the bottom, they're like, as I started to climb up it, they were trying to make some hand gestures to me or, or um, get my attention. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I realised later they were saying, they were attempting to communicate to me, like, are you crazy? You've got no canopy cover. It's the middle of the day. And you're going to do, you're going to like exert yourself in the middle of the jungle. It's insanely hot and humid, insanely hot and humid. And uh, again, a bit like a mad dog or an Englishman, I just paid no heed to it. Um, I don't think I even had a, a hat or anything. And uh, anyway, by the time I got to the top, I was 
absolutely wringing wet with sweat. It's like you're in a sauna. And I, I was sort of, that, yeah. I was a little, not scared, but I was a little bit worried. I was like, I'm, I'm in a bit of a difficult situation here because I'm not cooling down. I'm sitting in the shade and I'm not cooling down. You know, when like your head is throbbing yeah. and your body is just pouring sweat, mm-hmm. absolutely pouring sweat. And it's not, and you've got no res- respite from it. Like I say, even when you're in the shade, it's like you're in a sauna. Anyway, I came down and very nearly passed out. And these same little old ladies, they must have seen it before. They must have seen <laughs> Western tourists getting themselves in, in a pickle exactly like that many a time. And they put me in a hammock and gave me some bananas and a bottle of water. That was very and, nice. Yeah, like pretty much saved me in a way. Um, they were sort of, I think, they were, they were smirking. They've definitely seen it before. <laughs> um, but the point is, the whole point of saying all of that is, um, that if you know what you're doing and you live out there, you, you have to spend a big chunk of the day not really doing anything. Mm-hmm. Exert, not exerting yourself very deliberately. Um, so that is the opposite of sort of maybe North, Northwestern Europe, where um, not only can you, but you sort of have to be working quite hard most of the day, all year round. Um, so, so yeah, the, the geography and mm-hmm. the climate <clears throat> absolutely dictate um, how advanced, for want of a better word, I mean, because that's quite a broad thing to say, but how advanced your culture or your civilization becomes because mm. you've just simply put in more time and effort. Um, you're forced to. No, that makes perfect sense to me. It's not a cop to out to say that, I think. No, no, no. I think it's perfectly reasonable. Having spent time in very hot countries, it does take it out of you. It makes you more tired. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's undeniable. And mm. it... I didn't really understand why this, I thought it was a sort of, oh, aren't the Spanish lazy when I heard about siestas. And then I went to Spain and started having naps in the afternoon. I'm just like, oh, right. Yeah, this makes sense. My, uh, my dislike for the Spanish for years of, you know, warfare <laughs> slowly trickled away as I understood them a little bit more. <laughs> mm. But you are right. And I think that um, one thing that does get brought up, particularly about Northwestern Europe is, Obviously, these are the, the countries that were historically Protestant, largely. Um, and it gets referred to as the Protestant work ethic. But I think actually, there's sure that might well be part of it. But there's certainly a geographic element to it as well. In that I know um, plenty of English folk songs, for example. And there are lots of references of particular... This is showing my country bumpkin nature. There are lots of references of working hard to keep the, the, the winter chill away and things like that. Perhaps not winter, but autumnal. It would probably be in sort of towards the end of the harvest season. It's starting to get a bit cold and you've got to put in a bit of extra work to stay warm. Mm. And um, there is that sort of element of if you're not doing something manual and physical, you'll start feeling cold. That's especially true of, say, the Inuit, um, oh. whom constantly on the move because it's cold and of course they do adapt with pretty um uh, elaborate layers of animal furs to, to stay warm but even so there's only so much that that can do and it, it has to affect your lifestyle and your productivity and your attitudes towards it because it's the only way you can really survive when you look at through the sweep of history different uh, geographical locations on the planet that have experienced booms, 
should we say, in, in advancement, um, it doesn't always, it's not always intuitive where that's going to be. So, for example, there's the idea of the Protestant work ethic in mm. the, to be a pedant, uh, strict, strictly speaking, obviously that's only after the, the Protestant Reformation. Of course, yeah. Um, which isn't all that long ago, sort of, you know, the uh, 16th century, 17th century. Um, so before that, well, so for example, the thing that I was had in mind was the first cities where I've... Um, I've done epochs, check those out, about the first Sumerian cities um, and the cultures of like Akkad and things. Um, uh, Why there? It's not necessarily, despite sort of the very fertile land you've got between the two rivers of the Euphrates and the Tigris and Euphrates, you wouldn't necessarily think that's the ideal spot where human stratified civilization would be the first place for it to spring up if northwest europe is so such a perfect spot why was it why was it in southern iraq and not northwestern mm-hmm. europe and then also if you look at perhaps the industrial revolution or the age of sail why was it northwestern europe and not somewhere else that have got essentially the same sort of sorts of advantages like China or Arabia or the, 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 the Near East or any number of places, actually. Mm. So why was it, why were these particular places? I think the geography and climate absolutely play into it, are a massive factor, but not the sole factor. And perhaps I would argue not even the driving factor. It's a very yeah. important one. I'm not going to deny that, but there's much more going on. There will always be much more going on. The human psychology, the, the politics of your culture, uh, yeah, the, the values of the societies and culture you live in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, a good comparison would be between um, Britain and Japan, mm. for example. I know Britain is slightly different topographically than Japan. We had more domestic agriculture. We had more arable land, that sort of thing. Um, relative to the population, but why did the Japanese, as an island, not develop a navy comparable to the British navy in, say, the height of the, our navy in the 19th century? Why, why did that not happen? And you've got to conclude that perhaps it was Japan's isolationist view of you know, international relations and its lack of appreciation for exploration I think it's values that drove that more than anything else. You've got this sort of um, British, um, what's the way of putting it? Something unique in a way. Kutzpah? <laughs> I suppose that's the term for it, sure. But yeah, we were <laughs> more willing, we were all willing to do stupid things. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, stupid stroke, great. Yeah. Things. Pig-headed greatness. <laughs> Is, is a way of putting it, I suppose. No, it's a, it's a very interesting thing. So you look at, say, modern Japan, and they're absolutely capable. There's no doubt that they're not capable of high technology and innovation and hard work and all mm. that sort of thing. That's not in doubt. Okay, so why was it an Englishman or a Dutchman that first got to uh, Easter Island? Or why was it a Spaniard that first got to the west coast of America? Why didn't a Japanese person 
surely by rights a, a Chinese or a Japanese person or Southeast Asian should have um, sailed across the Pacific or got to the west coast of America first. The Japanese people were absent. They're, they're a seafaring nation. Mm. Why did they, and they're capable of building ocean-going ships, why didn't they? Um, so it's a really important question just to say, um, oh, it's their values. Okay, so that's a massive thing to unpack then. It a is, A massive yeah. thing to unpack because they had millennia to do it. They had centuries and centuries to do it and essentially failed to do it. Um, um, <clears throat> and so, well, famously, isn't it, that the Japanese were isolationist. Uh, there was a specific day in the 19th century, I think the Japanese called it like the day of the black ships or something, when uh, in the middle of the 19th century, an American ship uh, with cannons sailed into, was it Tokyo Harbour? Or sailed just so, straight yeah. into the, up to the Japanese who considered themselves uh, isolationist. And they couldn't stop them from doing it. And it was sort of a massive wake-up call for Japan. Sort of like a, a, a true culture shock for mm. them. Um, because they realised that the, the United States and really the West was um, <clears throat> had absolutely outstripped them in terms of technological advancement. And uh, then you get the, the, the Magi and things very soon after that. And Japan completely sort of reinvents itself um in some ways um but yeah so anyway the question why was um why was it northwest europeans that um got to australia let's say obviously there's the uh, aboriginal peoples of australia but then after those was it someone like captain cook rather than uh an arabian or an indian or a chinese captain the answer to that is really quite complex, actually. Mm. There's a lot to unpack there. And I think it has more to do with values and politics and worldview than geography. Thank you for watching that clip from my series Contemplations. If you want to sign up to the website for £5 a month, you can access that series, which comes out 1pm every Saturday. Thank you for watching and goodbye.